0: Okay. Well, good evening, everyone. It is good to be here. I was just thinking, as we were worshiping, that this time two weeks ago, I had one of the more unusual and wonderful experiences of my life, preaching in a Pentecostal church in rural Western Uganda. And I got the schedule uh, a few days before they'd asked me to preach, and the preach was scheduled for one Hour, and there were 287 children under the age of 11 in attendance, and I preached for about 30 minutes, which was like the most I could possibly stretch it to, and then I finished. And the, the pastor was missing because he had assumed that I was going to see out the R, and he suddenly reappeared reappe- and he came in and he said, "Very short, very punchy," and I thought, "Well, yeah, um, very short." Very punchy. Um, I'll try not to preach for an hour tonight. We've been in a, a series called Song in My Soul Journeying Through the Psalms, and it, it struck me actually earlier today that I preached my first sermon this week 10 years ago in Orangefield, and the passage was Psalm 103 which was the passage Gareth read as we uh, opened and worshipped tonight. We didn't plan that, but it, that was one of those moments where, do you know one of those moments when God puts a finger on your shoulder and just says, I've got you, I'm here. Um, that was totally wonderful. So that was 10 years ago. Um, tonight we are going to uh, read from Psalm 51. So uh, it, it's a better known psalm. It's a well-known psalm. Uh, And I'd love to read this to you as we get started. I think it'll maybe appear on the screen so you can follow along as well. Psalm 51. I'll read this little subtitle as well. It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from blood guilt, O God, for you are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Amen. Ten years ago, when I uh, preached on Psalm 103, I said the Psalms are amazing because they're real. They're amazing because they're real. And the Psalms are an expression of spirituality in every key. Alan Emerson, who uh, was here in October for Reactivate 10 and wrote uh, a book called Luminous Dark that I'd love to recommend to you uh, about losing his wife when he was 27 years old, said this in his book, I have found in contemporary Christian culture a disproportionate emphasis on triumphalism and victory. This isn't the case with the Bible. The Bible is full of suffering and heartache, anguish and questions, rawness, intensity, and emotion. And in my grief, I discovered a Bible I had missed all my life, and the Psalms were my staple diet. You see, in the Psalms, you get a full spectrum of human emotion and experience and reality. And tonight's Psalm, Psalm 51, is on the subject of shame, now, somebody was being very smart this morning and asked me, well, Johnny, how's it going? You know, how was Uganda? Yada, yada, yada. Are you ready for tonight? Are you feeling particularly shameful? I was like, what sort of question is that? Are you feeling particularly shameful? Uh, and then I thought about it and I was like, actually, Naomi's been away for a week um, in Africa and I've been in the house on my own and I have an app on my phone and the app is called Just Eat. Just um, and if you're not familiar with this app, the way it works is you, you press a button and at the singular touch of a button, your bank account is depleted. But when your bank account is depleted, all manner of delicious fast food can be summonsed from outlets across Belfast directly to your sofa. So yes, thank you for asking. This week, I am well acquainted with shame. This psalm is about shame, and it's unusual among the psalms because it's given a precise historical placement. So you notice in your Bible, the first thing it says is this is when the prophet Nathan came to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's unusual. Most of the psalms, we don't have a precise historical placement for them, but we know when this was written and why. And when you see David, you need to think of David, the king of Israel, a great king, a king who led the people in military conquest, a king who united the kingdom of Israel, a king who was described as a man after God's own heart. When you read King David, you need to hear in every possible sense, the golden boy. And then in 2 Samuel 11, in just one chapter of the Bible, we're told a story of David's adultery. David commits adultery with a woman called Bathsheba who he sees bathing on the rooftop. And we say adultery, possibly, maybe probably rape. And this is the most horrific sex scandal. It's like the sex scandal to end all sex scandals, the most unthinkable moral failure. I would imagine David um, could never have anticipated that he was capable of this kind of fall from grace. And the first thing that he does instinctively in the aftermath is he tries to cover it up. And when he can't cover it up, he then very deliberately and um, strategically arranges for Bathsheba's husband to be killed. And he becomes a murderer. And the golden boy has utterly blown it. I don't know if you've ever failed in a way that you would once have thought was impossible or that you were not capable of. But that's what David experienced. And in Psalm 51, he talks about his shame, and it's a psalm of confession. You see, about a year or more, in fact, after this happened, and David has been trying to cover this up, or has ignored it, or has rationalized it, we don't really know, but about a year or so later, he's confronted by a prophet, and the prophet Nathan tells him a story about a man, and he says, David, there was a man who had everything. He was obscenely rich. He had the whole world at his disposal, and he stole a lamb, from a poor man who had nothing. And David is furious and pronounces judgment on the man who has done this. And Nathan says, David, you are the man. And it's like his whole world comes crashing down. Psalm 51 gives us uh, the most remarkable insight into his heart and his response To this failure. Somebody once said that there are two things in life that are certain, right? Death and taxes. That's not correct. Places like Switzerland exist, places like Monaco, you can go there, you don't pay any tax. Um, If you are a Christian, however, there is another thing that is certain, that is absolutely certain, and it's this you will fail. If you are going to attempt to follow Jesus, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, if you are a Christian, you will fail. Failure is certain. You will fail in ways that are intentional, and deliberate where you know before, during, and after the act that the thing is wrong. You will feel in ways that are sudden and unintentional when you're caught off guard. You will feel in one-off ways and feel in ways that are patterns. You will feel in ways that are addictions. You will feel in trivial ways and in epic ways. If you're a Christian, if you're going to call yourself a Jesus follower, I promise you that you will feel why. Because the Bible says that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. But listen to me here. You are an unfinished new creation. I am an unfinished new creation. And something in our mindset and in our heart begins to shift when we realize that that is reality and that that is okay. We are an unfinished new creation. I forget that all the time. Brokenness and failure in your life will be a reality until jesus comes again there's no escaping that and if that is the case then it is very important that in church we don't pretend that we have it all together Because when we all participate in this unspoken contract of pretending that we have it all together, the way that makes me feel is I sit in church and feel like my weaknesses are worse than everybody else's. My failures are greater than everybody else's. My struggles are are worse than everybody else's. And we're all feeling the same way. It makes you feel like you're the only one. Jeff Lucas was talking about the church once and he said, for God's sake, give us some reality love that. And, and in a big way or in a small way, we've all experienced a little bit of that frustration that reality is not always easy in church. And not all of the reasons for that are bad, but it is true. Reality is not always easy in church and the church struggles with reality. And yet when reality comes, it has this way of like opening a window in a stuffy room and letting in some cool, fresh air. We all feel, we all struggle. Life is is hard That's a universal truth. And if you're going to call yourself a Jesus follower, failure is certain. I have a, a German friend that everyone calls Bobby. His name's Andreas, but we call him Bobby. Um, and he was talking to me once about this, and he said, "Johnny, in Germany, we still have a lot of pig hunting. Um, so the farmers would hunt pigs, and they use uh, Schweinhund, right, which in German is a pig dog." And these pig dogs are really useful for hunting pigs because they're, they're small, like, angry little things, and they go chasing after a pig, and they're bred to do this. So they get a pig in their sights, and they just latch onto a leg, and a Schweinhund is not big enough and strong enough to bring down a pig, but it just latches onto a leg, and it's like... Rawr, rawr, right? And it just kind of holds onto the pig and slows it down, and the pig, like, struggles and begins to bleed out, and then the farmer comes and shoots the pig, and that's that. And Bobby told me this story once, and I was like, where is he going with this? And then he said, Johnny, every Christian, every Christian, you and I, every Christian has got Schweinhund. Every one of us have have failures and struggles and sin, patterns of sin and struggle in our life that are like Schweinhund, that you know, they're not big enough and strong enough to actually bring you down, to bring the whole kind of um, edifice of your Christian faith crashing to the floor, but they just latch onto you, and as you're trying to progress, and you're trying to get closer to Jesus, and you're trying to move further on in your maturity, they just, you know, get around your legs, and right, we've all got Schweinhund, and then he said something that changed my perspective forever, he said, what if we could bring them into church? What if every week we turned up in church and you had to bring your failures and your struggles and your pain with you in the form of Schweinhund? If everybody walked in with a lead like this and six dogs around them, like, right, and you were looking around the room and you're like, oh, that's an ugly one. Oh my goodness, Davy Larmer, that's an ugly one. And, and then you were looking across the room and you were like, oh, wow, there's Andrew, right? That's, he's got a noisy one. That's pretty noisy. Look at the teeth on that, Right. And we were all carrying them. And it would be very funny for about 10 seconds. And then, do you know something? There would be this amazing relief and freedom of like, we're all in the same boat. We all have these. There isn't anybody here who glows in the dark. There isn't anybody who's perfect. My failures, my struggles, my pain, it's just the same as everybody else. And we're all in this together. We all have Schweinhund. And when you feel, when you struggle, when you sin, it produces shame. Brene Brown uh, did a TED talk on the subject of shame a few years ago. And she said she hoped that 500 people would hear it. And today, 11 and half million people have watched her talk on shame on YouTube. And um, she says that shame is a sense of being unworthy of love or connection. Sometimes when we feel, when we struggle, and when we sin, it makes us feel like we're unworthy of love or unworthy of connection. And she says in her talk that in today's society, we have an epidemic of shame. And this is the terrifying thing. She says this as well. Shame is a powerful driver of addiction, depression, eating disorder, bullying, aggression, violence, envy, hatred, self-pity, and self-harm. Not that those things produce shame, which they do, but that shame is actually a primary driver of those things. And then they produce shame, which drives them further, and it's like a cycle. That's why reality in the church is important, because reality breaks cycles of shame. In some way that is big or small, we all relate to this. We are all familiar with this. Life is harder when we feel life is heavier when we feel and we sometimes medicate our shame or our feeling of unworthiness of love or connection with things that actually create more shame and hurt and i want to show you tonight in the psalms a different way i want to show you a pathway that um i believe could change your life um I want to begin in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is another psalm of confession. And David says this at the beginning, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And the psalm finishes by saying, rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous and sing all who are upright in heart. David says through the psalms of confession, and we will come now to Psalm 51. David says that there is a pathway with Through relationship with God, there is a pathway from failure and disappointment in yourself and shame and sin. And there's a pathway that you can walk down that will lead you to a place of joy and freedom and confidence in God's faithfulness and delight, not back into more cycles of disappointment and shame. We need to walk that pathway that takes us from a place of disappointment in ourselves to joy and peace with ourselves, peace with God, and and confidence in who he is and what he has done. You see, God has no favorites, but he does have intimates. And I want to be one of those, like, nothing I want in life. God has no favorites, but he does have intimates. I'm going to walk us through that pathway now, but before I do that, I want to say this, and I want you to hear this well. Listen. The mark of Christian intimacy, maturity, and success is not the absence of failure. The mark of Christian intimacy, maturity, and success is not the absence of failure. It's how you respond when you fail. So what does the pathway look like? Let's dive into Psalm 51. David begins uh, in verse 2 and 3 by saying this, Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse my sin. I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. The first step along the pathway that leads from disappointment and failure to life and joy and, and peace, the first step is admitting failure to yourself. And David uses three words. They're in the kind of Hebrew biblical vocabulary for sin. And I learned this by listening to Tim Mackey, who is a Hebrew expert. He's fantastic. He says there are three main words in the Old Testament for sin. One is the word sin, which is the Hebrew hata'ah, and it means failure. Yesterday, I was playing football. I missed a sitter from about three yards out, really wet. Foot got right underneath the ball, blundered it over the bar. It was easier to score. If a Hebrew boy had been watching, he would have said to his dad, What a hata'ah! Right? What a failure. Um, That's the meaning of the word. The second word he uses is iniquity, which is the Hebrew word avon. And it is the idea of there being a path through life that goes in the right direction. And to be avon is to have found yourself astray and to have been wayward. And the last word is transgression, the Hebrew pesha, which is the idea of there being a boundary. You know it's there and you cross it anyway. David says the first step to life and peace and joy in the midst of failure is to say to yourself, I do this, it's in me. I know my transgressions and my sin is before me. I I pesha and sometimes I avon and on occasion I even hata'a and sometimes I do all three at once. Pete Gregg once counseled a guy who'd had an affair and he said, I, I met him for coffee and for 50 minutes he talked to me over this coffee, and I sipped mine and listened, and for 50 minutes, he talked about an unresolved childhood trauma, and then he talked about an unfulfilled marriage, and then he talked about stress at work, and finally, he talked about his compulsive personality, and in 50 minutes, not once did he say, Pete, I sinned. You have to admit that it's, it's in me. Some people are at the opposite end of the spectrum and they beat themselves black and blue. That's not confession. That's self-flagellation. I'll come to that in a moment. But some of us find it difficult to admit when we're wrong. And and if that's you, I guess you'll probably know that. And there could be any number of reasons for that. But the pathway to life, when there is disappointment and failure in your experience, the pathway to life begins with admitting, I got this wrong. I did something wrong. Psalm 32 says this, When I kept silent, when I didn't own it, My bones wasted away. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Freedom begins by saying, I was wrong. Step number two on this pathway is confessing failure to God. Um, David says this in in 3 and 4. Sorry, a little bit. Yeah, in verse 4, he says, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So David confesses his sin to God. He admits it to himself, and then he takes it to God. And I used to think that confession meant to beat yourself black and blue. That's what I thought confession was about. But confession doesn't mean that. The word confess means to say the same. Okay? So if there is a failure or a disappointment or a sin in your life, then to confess means to say the same of it as God does. So if God calls it sin, then to confess is to say, Lord, I agree, that's sin. I'm gonna say the same of it as you do. And here's the remarkable thing: when you confess and when you say the same, you immediately have an opportunity in failure to bring God glory and to honor him and to say, God, you are true and you are right and you are just because I'm going to say the same of my failure as you do. Well, I think I think that's an amazing opportunity to take. And when we speak things out. it it brings a kind of illumination to them. Shame, if you put shame in a a Petri dish, if the conditions for that Petri dish are silence and secrecy and judgment, shame just grows and grows and gets even more shadowy and destructive and powerful and makes things a hundred times worse. And David, after about a year and a half of rationalizing and ignoring and struggling with this, brings it to God and he speaks it out and confesses it. I also notice that when he confesses his sin, it's the sin that he hates. It's not the consequence because there, there are serious consequences for his sin, but they haven't happened yet. And it's not the consequences that he hates. It's the sin itself, and it's the damage that it's done to his relationship with God. In fact, he, he talks about the consequences, and he says, you know, God, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge I had a math teacher in school, and we used to stick stuff on his roof. I'm not proud of that, but we did. Every lunchtime, we used to stick stuff on his roof. And I don't know why. We just liked winding him up. And we used to have this rule that if you had anything at all in your lunch that would stick to the roof, it had to go. So do you know Baby Bell cheese? Yeah, it doesn't stick to the roof. But the red wrapper that the Baby Bell cheese comes in ideal. It'll stick to any surface up there. So we were just throwing this stuff up every day. And every day, oh yeah, fruit and vegetables as well. Fruit and vegetables are fantastic. You've got to get them in the right consistency. Bananas, perfect. You throw a banana on the roof, if I did that in here, it goes black, it rots, it smells, it forms these magnificent banana stalactites that become like a historical relic. You know, future pupils can come, and they can study the work of classes that have been before and created these beautiful... Anyway, We used to do that every day. And every day, Mr. Wilson, sorry, the teacher in question, would come back and he would go mad. And he was like, you boys! And every day we'd be like, wasn't me. Um, And he could never prove it, which was great. He could never prove it. He never caught anyone in the act. And then one day, one fateful day, Mr. Wilson came back. (laughs) Sorry, that has gone now. Mr. Wilson came back in the middle of the lunch break and every one of us was facing the door and we saw him come in and we knew that now was not a good time except for Ben. Ben had his back to the door. Not only that, Ben was preparing his banana for imminent application to the roof and it was like everyone's life went into slow motion and every one of us with our eyes were like, (laughs) burn! (laughs) no. And do you know what he did? He just went, and the banana went on the roof. And Mr. Wilson clapped his hands and was like, at last. And then he said, you are going to clean every inch of my roof. And he disappeared out the door, stormed off, and he was off to get a ladder so that Ben could clean every inch of the roof. When he returned 15 minutes later, uh, Ben had become deeply repentant, very remorseful. Uh, ben was profoundly sorry for what he had done, but here's the thing. He was sorry about the consequences. He loved the sin, and so did I, but that's besides the point. He loved the sin. Uh, Christian confession is not remorse for consequences. We hate sin that drives a wedge in our intimacy with God. The third step along the pathway is to look to Jesus. I'm approaching an R here, aren't I? It feels like it. Um, the third step along the pathway is to look to Jesus. Listen, if you hear nothing else tonight, if you forget all the other steps, just remember this one, okay? Um, David then says in Psalm 51, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. It's a weird thing to say, cleanse me with hyssop. I've never been in the showers after a game of football and the lad's like, here, Johnny, pass the hyssop. Um, You just don't hear it. But David asks for cleansing with the hyssop plant, which is strange. So what's that all about? Let me tell you. It's about Jesus. Okay? It's about Jesus. Let me show you how. In Exodus 12, you have the story of the Passover. So God moves in response to Israel and their prayers for deliverance and he brings them out of slavery and oppression, and he delivers them, and he brings them into an inheritance of their promised land. And the way that he does it, he asks them to take a lamb and slaughter the lamb and then use a plant, the hyssop plant, to draw the blood from the lamb and to smear it across their doorway. And when they do this, his judgment passes over them. He delivers them from slavery. He delivers them from bondage, and he brings them to their inheritance of a promised land. Let me ask you a question. When God moved in grace and in power in their lives to deliver them, did he inspect, A, the quality of their law-keeping performance, or B, the quality of the lamb that had been sacrificed? The answer is obviously B. He inspected the quality of the lamb that had been sacrificed. Jesus comes along and John the Baptist says, here is the true reality of the Passover lamb. Here's the one who is going to take the weight of our shame, all of our failure, past, present, and future, upon himself and remove our sins and take them away from us forever. He says that is what Jesus has come to do. And when Jesus dies on the cross in John's gospel, we are told the Holy Spirit tells us that Jesus drinks from a hyssop plant to reaffirm his identity and the purpose behind his death, and to recall the Passover lamb, and to say that was just a shadow. I am the sacrificial lamb who will take the weight and the guilt of your uh, failing and your disappointment with yourself and your shame and your sin and remove it from you forever, past, present, and future. And David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be whiter than snow. I will be cleaner than clean. I will be perfected. Let me tell you this. When you come to church on a Sunday or when you present yourself before God at any time of the week, when you draw near to God, let me ask you a question. Is it your moral performance that's evaluated and your behavior? Do you get a score out of 10 or is it the quality of your sacrifice that is inspected? Answer, it's the quality of your sacrifice. How is yours? Yours is perfect. Yours is perfect. 10 out of 10. Morally, perfect. Perfect clean. R.C. Sproul said, yeah, I still sin, I still feel, but let me tell you this, I don't have any sins. I don't have any failure because Jesus took all of it for me. They don't stick. And David says, when we are whiter than snow, we can erupt in joy and in gladness because your lamb is perfect. The Bible uses a whole variety of different metaphors to say what this achieved when Jesus went to the cross, and the metaphors are so rich and colorful and beautiful, and they're for you, and the Bible tells us that when Jesus went to the cross and his blood was shed, that it was an atonement. It was like Jesus took the weight of your shame and the feeling of of unworthiness of love and connection, and he wore it on his own shoulders so that you would be free of it. He was a substitute. It tells us it was a justification. That's a legal image. That's where we stand stand in the dock, and the judge says, yes, you're guilty, and then the judge says, but I want to take the shame and the guilt and pay the price, and I want you to be liberated and free, and to know that you stand in moral perfection that is not your own. The Bible says it was a redemption. That's a commercial image. That's where Jesus goes to the heavenly Tesco, and he says, I'd like to have a Victoria, please, and I'll also have a Gary, and I'll have a Jeremy, Um, and let's see, I'll have a Roger, and um, do I really want an Andrew? Fine, I'll take one, Um, and do I want a cursed and yeah, all right. And, and Jesus arrives at the till in the heavenly Tesco and it's like, but these people are covered in shame because they feel and that's what it means to be human. How are you gonna pay for this? And Jesus climbs into the till and pays with his own body and says, I want these people to belong to me now, forever, always because um, I love them and I have, uh, I have eternally decided that they are worthy of love and connection. Let me tell you this, if you have shame in your life that's been brought on by failure or struggle or pain or disappointment, shame is never the final word, never the defining posture for a Christian, because shame is to be unworthy of love and connection, and Jesus Christ, the the true reality of the Passover lamb, has eternally spoken over your life that you are worthy of love and connection with him and peace with yourself and with others. That is the judgment that has been rend over your life. David talks about receiving renewal, forgiveness, and kindness. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David learned to look at what Jesus had done, and he could only see very dimly, and we see it in clarity and in brilliance. He learned to look at that promise of God, that covenant of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, and to receive that forgiveness and to not look back, to be kind and compassionate to himself I found it really helpful when I was younger to memorize a little verse of scripture that just says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I just remember like at times in my life repeating that over and over and over again internally and just receiving that and repeating it until it began to sink deep into my heart. And I knew that, yes, I might get frustrated with myself, but there is a sufficient sacrifice for all of my sin, past, present, and future, for my failing, and I can be patient with myself. Imagine if you could live out of a place where you know that God is utterly committed and has spoken and promised his commitment to finish the work that he started in you, that he sees all of your failing, struggling, and disappointment, and he loves you the same. He went to the cross to, to purchase you and to cover you and drench you in his love and acceptance, and he's not going to let go of you or give up on you until the work is finished. Imagine if you really received that and lived out of that as a a kind of heart posture. This is the last thing I want to say tonight. David says this, um, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. My mouth will declare your praise. My sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, David lifts, is lifted by God out of his failure, and he then is able to get on with his task and get on with what God has called him to. Let me ask you a question. What are you called to? What has God given you that is a passion in your life, that's in your heart to do for him? What kind of dreams has God released over you and your life? Yes, we feel, but go and do it anyway. Go and lay hold of it anyway. Because God uses people who are broken, He uses people who are weak. He uses people who are struggling. You are a trophy of God's grace. There is something about failure, and this is, um, I think, the most extraordinary thing to wrap our heads around. There is something about failure and something about struggling that actually uniquely qualifies us to point to God's strength and to point to his faithfulness and to proclaim his goodness. It was never about our moral brilliance or how impressive we are or being impressed with ourselves. It was always about him After David failed, God described David twice as a man after my own heart. The second time he described him as a man after my own heart, that was in the aftermath of his failure and his repentance and his restoration. Some of you need to hear that tonight, that God does not see you as someone who has blown it. God does not see you as someone who is living like in the second-rate plan that God had for you because you messed up the first one. God sees you as someone who is after his own heart, who is intimate with him, and who is uniquely qualified, even through, maybe because of failure, to proclaim his goodness and to point to his grace, to bring life to others. Peter was chosen and commissioned to lead the church and was given the most authority and the most important ministry assignment of his life after he had blown it and was restored. The disciples, every one of them, left and abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. And when he came back and was resurrected, he made them breakfast on the beach and he, and he wrapped his arms around them because they were traumatized and they were tired and they were struggling and he loved them because he's wonderful. And then he gave his Holy Spirit to them, and he said, you know, I commission you to go and do the same things that I did. Go and have my authority and lead people into life. They didn't look back. Neither should you. Let me finish with this. Sam Albury said this. There is more mess in you than you ever imagined. But mess is God's specialism. And there is no amount of mess that could flummox God. You are God's mess. He loves you deeply. And he has anointed you to lead and to serve. So lead on. I love that. There's a pathway here that takes us from failure, disappointment, and shame to a place of joy and peace and confidence in God. Let's walk that pathway often. Let me pray. Father, uh, I want to thank you for your word and thank you for an opportunity to uh, teach it. God, I want to pray now that as we um, just begin to re-enter a place of sung worship, Father, may your spirit come And I pray, Lord, that your spirit will take and remove things that are of me and that have been self-indulgent and just take your word to us and your word to each one of us tonight and plant it deep within us. Lead us now, God, into a place of encounter that we would receive your love afresh, receive your anointing afresh. I, I want to pray for anyone here tonight, Lord, who has struggled or got stuck somewhere on that pathway of processing shame or disappointment in themselves or failure. And I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you'll come and you'll lift their eyes to Jesus, and there will be this uh, wonderful sense of peace, reconciliation, and a fresh start. I pray there would be people tonight, Lord, who take their first steps in a new anointing and a new authority that comes um, that comes, Lord, because you are calling us again, even in our failure and our disappointments, to lead and to serve and to be your people and to lead this world into life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.